Hello, this is Edie. Before we get started, I wanted to make sure you knew first how much we appreciate you, and that in honor of Teacher Appreciation Week, right now at Heinemann.com, you can get 15% off and free shipping on all Heinemann professional books. This offer runs until May 11th. Head on over after the episode. Some restrictions apply. See the website for details. What if revision is something that happens in the mindset of the writer during the writing process, not just on the page after it's done? This is the question that author Chris Hall sets out to answer in his new book, The Writer's Mindset, Six Stances That Promote Authentic Revision. He presents readers with six stances, metacognition, optimism, perspective taking, flexible thinking, transfer, and risk taking all of these to guide and expand the standard revision process. I'm Brett from Heinemann, and today on the podcast, Chris Hall is joined by author Ellen Oliver Keen. Chris was mentored by Ellen during his time as a Heinemann Fellow. It was through their collaboration and the action research project Chris worked on that led to the work that became the writer's mindset. Chris and Ellen began their conversation talking about the evolution of Chris's work since their time together at the Heinemann Fellowship. Well, Chris, I am so delighted to have a chance to talk to you about this book. I got it a few weeks ago. I read it in gulps, huge gulps, because as it happens right now in many of the schools that I'm working in, we're really struggling with revision with kids. And I'm always sort of in my mind when um, teachers are talking to this to me about these obstacles to revision, I've always hearkened back to your original Heinemann Fellows revision uh, action research project. So I think given that our um, our associations, colleagues and friends, started with Heinemann Fellows, and this book then evolved out of that work, right? So Absolutely. it sounds like Maybe, I mean, I would love to hear maybe at the beginning a little bit about that evolution. You took on this project as a fellow, and then how did it turn into this gorgeous book? Sure, yeah. Um, it was, you know, I, I think one of our fe- our fellow fellows, uh, Kate Flowers Rossner, uh, talked about action research being like um, like a lighthouse in a storm, right? Like our teachings, this wild whirlwind, and we're always getting buffeted. She called it by the tyranny of the urgent. And so I was just trying to think what of all these, you know, um, issues I have to deal with and all the problems of practice, what, what's one beam, you know, that I could kind of focus on. And for me, that was revision. Like you said, it's something I just kept coming back to. And so I wanted to take a hard look at it. And specifically, the kind of driving question for me was the kids in my classroom who say, uh, I like it the way it is. The words you never want to hear. Exactly. They're the groaning like, oh, gosh. And I, I mean, it's funny. I heard him this week, right? Because what it means, however they say it, is that, you know, this work site's closed. There is no revision happening. And so what I, what I noticed when, when we were doing the research with the fellows was just I took a good look at that. And it was happening. It happened, you know, across the spectrum of writers. You know, you'd kind of maybe predict it with kids who typically struggle, uh, struggled with writing. But, but I also noticed sometimes that came from kids who, who came to my room highly skilled and confident. And so I wanted to get at what, you know, what was behind that resistance to revision and how could I get kids to embrace it and, you know, make revision meaningful to more meaningful to them and more engaging. 
So that that was that was the genesis of the of the whole thing. And and I did a lot of through the research of the Heinemann Fellows, did a lot of kid watching, interviewing, and those were really rich. And obviously looking at kids' uh, revision work. And I looked at tensions in my own teaching, which that's what the, you know, action research is all about, right? Exactly. Exactly. Were there um, mentors? I I know Don Murray um, shows up quite literally in your book, walks into your classroom in your book. But were there other mentors in the uh, writing field that you turn to for, for kind of inspiration about revision? I mean, one of the things that struck me so much in reading your book is that we haven't talked a whole lot in this field about revision. Georgia Hurd has done some lovely things, for example, but it's been a few years. I mean, this is a, a more or less untouched topic in, in writing. It's interesting to hear you say that because I've been steeping, you know, I've been marinating myself in, in this. So for me, I, I, I've thought there's so much out there. What am I going to say about this? But you, you're right. Georgia Hurd was a huge inspiration. You know, the revision toolbox, I'm looking at it right in front of me here. Um, Carl Anderson, is terrific at you know i really uh looked closely at, at what he's written and and have got have been fortunate to get to meet him and talk with him about you know conferring with kids he's such an expert at that ralph fletcher's work for sure um barry lane you know his sort of after the end work it was hugely inspirational like just thinking of creative ways to get kids to you know dive back into revision and make it fun and, and joyful and playful i mean he he like exudes joy he does. <laughs> he does. And, uh, and in the book, I, I, I talk about a writing teacher I had in back, way back in undergrad, Bruce Ballinger. From, he's since at Boise State, but um, he, was, he was hugely influential at just looking at writing process. He was a, kind of a disciple of Don Murray and, and Graves in writing process and kind of figuring out what you, you know, figuring out what you think uh, by writing, you know, through the writing. So, um, yeah. yeah it's, it's wonderful to hear. I think... Um... One of the things that was on my mind as I read it was the the influence of Carol Dweck and the whole sort of new connection, for me at least, that you made between the mindset work and, and sort of the tradition of writing process. And I'm curious how that, how you married those two. Well, it was, you know, it was, um, that's a great point because really the book's all about mindset, right? So uh, what I was, you know, a lot of the revision work that I had seen and that I had you know, steeped myself in was all about like the problems of the page. You know, you're looking at the page and you're helping kids to identify as a lot of di- diagnosis. And I mean, I've been teaching for 20 years. So you're looking at, you know, trying to help kids uh, to identify issues. And and then I was thinking about it and I was looking at, you know, Lucy Calkin saying, um, teach the writer, not the writing. You know, and I realized I was looking kind of in the wrong place. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Hugely important. And, you know, I'd read Dweck's mindset work and and I just realized I had to turn my gaze at the kids in front of me. And when I did that, and it was through action research, you know, I felt like I was stumbling on a new definition of revision. I was seeing kids who were, you know, yeah, kids needed to, of course, learn craft moves and writing skills. But it was really the mindset that they brought with them uh, that made them willing and open to revision. You know, I was like, I was noticing kids' enthusiasm to revise, even the ones that weren't necessarily the ones that came with the most the most moves right um, exactly sure so i, I, and I a questionnaire where you ask kids what are your current revision techniques <laughs> you have so many examples of kids saying i don't have any thank you well what was wild about that was realizing those kids actually did they just couldn't identify them and that sort of spoke to you know georgia Hurd's work you know of like showing kids what they have but but what i realized is some kids were 
some kids were very aware of what they were doing. You know, that, and then one of the stances that I talk about, one of the mindset stances is metacognition. And so the kids that were aware, not just at the end, but like throughout writing, like I'm trying this because, you know, this is my intention and I'm making decisions and I know I'm making decisions. Other kids, you know, a lot of kids, you'd say, how's it going? You know, to quote Carl Anderson, you know, how's it going? And you'd get like a blank stare, like, what do you mean? I'm just, this is just something I do. I don't, I don't think about what's happening. And of course you don't want kids overthinking. Uh, you want them in the flow of the writing, but, but metacognition was one of the things I noticed that uh, some kids could do. And then I noticed kids who are really open, you know, to new approaches. And so that's where this stance of flexibility came from or thinking flexibly. And optimism. I'd love for you to talk through those stances. And I want to make a comment before I ask you to just briefly talk about each of the six uh, stances. What I really loved about this book, Chris, is that you did something that that I think we need to do more in education. You looked at examples of kids who were doing, instead of studying all of the kids about whom we're worried, it seems to me that you benchmarked in a way. You studied the kids who embraced the stances, right? And then used those examples to, you know, to help other kids be metacognitive, be flexible thinkers, be optimistic, change their perspectives and so on. So I, I just, I love that looking at the, you know, as Catherine Bomer would say, the gems, you know, the kids who really um, have already embraced those, but may not know it. Actually, Bomer was a huge, uh, her, you know, her book, Hidden Gems, uh, you know, really was hugely influential too. That's lovely. And, um, and you know, just thinking about, it, it was, let's talk about optimism, right? It totally reframed the book when I, when I just, with, you know, other folks help just realizing I've, I need to look at these things I'm seeing right in front of me, these kids. And so that's kind of anchors the book. Each, each chapter is anchored by, uh, you know, starts with an anecdote about a kid who just embodies one of these mindset stances. And from looking at those kids, I just realized how did, I sort of backtrack and thought, how do we get there? You know, how, do, how does that happen? That's it. Exactly. It's it, instead of looking at all the problems and trying to build out of that. So talk to us through each of the stances just briefly. So the first one I, you were mentioning, I, uh, or I, we were talking about was metacognition and that idea of kids being aware of the decisions that they're making or any writer for that matter, you know, what, what I'm trying, my writing moves and, and why I'm trying them. So like, what's my intention? Why am I doing this? And I noticed that some kids would pay attention to these, you know, while they're writing, they would notice, you know, that we kind of all do this when we're writing, you know, what feels right and what sounds a little off, you know, when I feel energized by the writing and when it's falling flat, when I feel intrigued and confused. And, and of course we want kids to get in the flow of writing, but, but I noticed kids who could, you know, when I, when we were done with a quick write or something, kids that were pretty quickly aware of, you know, when I said, how's it going or what's going well, they would be able to articulate that. And that's something you can, all these stances are things you can consciously work at. The next one after metacognition was optimism. You mentioned that. And that's not like um, a Pollyannish, you know, like uh, everything's, you know, a rainbow flying off my pen, but um, the idea that we're going to build from what's working, you know, the kids that could kind of focus on the strengths of a piece, like, you know, like we all do, you know, you quick write or you write something and, and there's a piece of it that's great. And instead of focusing on its shortcomings, you're looking at what's, what's working. And maybe that, maybe that one sentence becomes the focus of the whole next draft, you know. Wasn't that the chapter where you talked about self-bullying? That hit home for me. I mean, and if that's happening to people who write routinely as adults, you know, gosh, can you imagine, you know, our kids. It's funny, Ellen, I was thinking of that today because, you know, that term self-bullying is from um, Chris Batty, who's uh, part of the um, novel writing uh, 
and and Tom Newkirk mentioned that. And so I thought, you know, Tom was talking about how vulnerable writing is and how we think our writing, you know, we constantly compare ourselves with our these revered authors. And I was thinking, you know, if Tom Newkirk is talking about this and people have written novels, you know, of course, of course, writing's a vulnerable act. And if if op- optimism is kind of the key to all of it, we, we want to keep writing. What's going to keep us hopeful in writing? And so to me, that chapter, it's the longest chapter. And I think because there was just so many things I thought, there's so many things that keep us optimistic or, you know, that can crush us. Exactly. And then the idea of perspective taking, I... I had written in Engaging Children about perspective bending, so I couldn't wait to read that chapter because I was so interested to see, you know, how you would, uh, you know, how you'd handle this this idea of, you know, how do we wear two hats at the same time? It is like a dance. And I, I, I saw a lot of connections between uh, your book and mine. And um, that, that idea of that dance between I'm writing for me, but I'm also thinking about my audience and what they're, what they're going to get or not get. And, you know, um, and what's going to delight them or confuse them. And that, and I did, I noticed kids who could kind of do that dance, you know, and, and see their writing from another perspective, step into a reader's shoes. And, you know, it's partly anticipation, right? So we anticipate, you know, oh, I think they're going to love this part or they're going to be delighted here or, hmm, I, I got to backtrack here because my reader's not going to know what I'm talking about. You know, we we see this in kids who sometimes tell stories but don't realize the background information that we need for it to make sense. Exactly. Um, yeah. So that's that. Yeah. I just used one of your techniques yesterday with some fourth graders outside of Grand Rapids, which was we can talk about offline, but it was so great. And they just honestly, and you say this in the book, I think, Chris. They haven't been asked to think about audience. Right. Well, exactly. even just asking kids, who's your audience for this? You know, they'll often, of course, they're going to look at you like, what are you talking about? Because they've never been asked to have an audience. There may not be a real audience for their writing. And no, you know, some, I've done this too, where sometimes it's an audience of one, me, the teacher, right? That was what they said. So this kid finally raised his hand and said, Mrs. Shelner? <laughs> nope. <laughs> let's, yeah. But again, like even just saying, well, let, let's brainstorm who could be the audience. Like today I was, I was sharing a piece of my writing with my students and, you know, they were like, did you write this for your daughter? And I said, absolutely. That's, it's an audience kind of for just her. And, uh, you know, and sometimes the audience, we were writing, you know, COVID quarantine journals last year and kids were sort of saying, I think a lot of other kids could relate to this. And they were, they were imagining like adolescents, you know, around the world, uh, this is their audience. And sometimes it's an, it is an audience of one. I had kids who wrote civic action letters two years ago, you know, to then President Trump, you know, demanding climate change. And they were they were very much aware of, all right, if I'm going to write to this person, here's what I have to keep in mind. Exactly, exactly. I, I think that's, that's very powerful. In the early days of writing process, we used to talk all the time about audience and purpose. And somehow those have faded into deep background. I'm, I'm very glad to see them resurrected here. Talk to us a little bit about, about flexible thinking, because this, I think, is... Uh, Maybe, I don't know, of all of the stances, the one that I'm most challenged with in working with young writers. It's a big one because, you know, it's the, these are the students who could hold off on saying, you know, I'm done. You know, we all get that. Like, I'm done. What's next? And these are kids who might, you know, could remain open to new ideas and approaches and feedback. You know, it's sort of the kids who could be curious to try something new. Um, it takes a little bit of confidence and, and it takes a humility to recognize, you know, it's okay if I get an idea from someone else and I can still make it my own. It's it's not easy. It's the one a lot of us do struggle with. So I have a lot of um, hopefully practical suggestions for just ways to, and even what I've found is even just making students aware of these stances, like just telling, like kids, not just kids, adults sometimes have to get reminders that, you know, it's important to stay flexible. Um, if I stay flexible, some great things might happen that I hadn't anticipated. Well, and you bring up at one point, I think it's earlier in the book that Dweck 
actually said, sometimes being just aware of mindset or just being aware of something like flexible thinking is enough to sort of open up those channels for kids. That was actually one of my hugest um, revelations when we were doing the action research was just letting kids know that we were doing research and letting them know like, oh, I'm, I'm discovering these mindsets. They start seeing them everywhere. You know, they just as a teacher, you, you know, if you take on the book, you'll start seeing them everywhere in your students. But make your student, making your students aware of them is hugely powerful because they would say things like, I think I need to be a little more optimistic about this and, you know, look for a line here. And it's not about teaching them jargon. It's, these are like, these are life skills, you know, being a little bit flexible, thinking from someone else's point of view, taking another perspective. These are, these are huge life skills. I mean, I've, I've always sort of struggled with that. Is it, you know, are we teaching them adult language? And I've, I've really come to a resolution in my own mind about that. When we can, as you say, notice a name, something that they're doing anyway, but give it the the actual language, you know, the more technical or professional or evolved language around it, it totally opens up new lines of communication. It's like helping them to articulate something that's in their mind anyway, but that they don't yet know how to name. They know all of these. Like they, when they, when they articulate them, you know, they're, or when they're articulated there, they, they'll nod and understand, you know, all of them. So. Yeah. Yeah. And then transfer is another uh, is another big one that I you know I've done a lot of thinking about, and I'm I'm actually writing a book right now that you really helped me with in this book, Chris. So thank you very much for that because I'm writing a book about the integration of reading and writing, and so this was a a great chapter for me. And that yeah, that's what it's all about the the idea that um, we all have these skills and we have craft moves we've learned you know from the earliest ages. And again, in metacognition, we talked about how sometimes we're not aware of them, but sometimes when we've learned them, we sometimes need reminders to intentionally reuse them or recycle them. And we've all had, had that frustration as teachers thinking, you learned this. I'm pretty sure you learned this. But it's it's getting kids to kind of um, key into that, those things that they know, being a little bit aware of them, but also consciously like recycling them and transferring them to a new piece. Or sometimes they'll think, well, this is something I do with stories or narratives. And you're, you can tell them, yeah, well, with a slight twist, this could easily be a lead for a poem. Or you've, you know, you learned about how to give feedback on this, and you can certainly use those same skills here. You know, finally, the the risk-taking um, stance that you write so beautifully about. I, I think about, about you a lot working with um, middle grade kids. I think, you know, I find very young kids far more willing to take risks, honestly. And I was working with some seventh graders this week and I gotta tell you, it was like pulling teeth. And I just, I don't, you know, the the um, the way they protect themselves, which I understand the need to do, that sometimes stands in their way in terms of taking risks as writers. It's a huge one because I'm now in eighth grade, Ellen. So uh, I teach eighth grade now. So I hear you loud and clear. Um, you know, when I taught younger grades, um, as you said, less so. The kids are more likely to put themselves right out there. And it's it's just what happens, you know, in upper middle school, um, you know, and, and, and in middle grades. You know, their kids are a little less likely to play and stretch beyond what they can do. And, they're, it, and the great thing about this research and hopefully this book is it, it's a reminder to us as teachers, like, writing is a challenge, right? After interviewing kids, I thought, wow, the fact that we revise at all is shocking. Like there's so many, you know, the first chapter I talk about a lot of the obstacles and one of them is it is a vulnerable act and we we are uncertain if we can pull it off. It's a bit of a, you know, high wire act sometimes. And 
and and where we we do need to experiment and that's not easy to do so just being aware of that and letting kids know i know this is hard i think what stood out for me and you don't highlight this specifically but it, it's the conditions you've so clearly created in your classroom chris that i think make that risk taking possible for middle grades kids for older kids who are so so concerned about you know how they present to their peers and it's the, you know, I, I would have loved to have had a chapter on how I create these kinds of relationships, how I create the, this kind of community spirit, really, in my classroom. But you're a master at that. And I get that from reading this book. What are some of the things that you really try to take into account when you're when you're thinking at the beginning of the year, especially about creating community that will encourage risk taking? We were just talking about this today because, you know, sometimes you jump in too quick and you realize, oh, they're not ready for this risk yet. So, you know, some sort of a gradual release of responsibility in some ways, like giving kids, you know, um, a sa- helping them feel safe. For example, um, you know, we were giving some feedback early this fall and I thought, you know, let's just keep it. I call it kudos only, you know, like let's keep it at just positives. And and for a variety of kind of strange reasons, sometimes kids buck that you know they want to they want to feel like adult by i had a kid say we we're gonna we're, we need to be blunt with our feedback and when they say feedback they think it means like you know let's let's really let's give criticism and and then i said let's hold back let's hold up a second let's talk about the reasons that we might it might help to hear positives it's not just fluff and we talked about having something be specific and be honest and we talked about how you know if someone can identify something specific in their piece, maybe a craft move they've even just tried, or um, certainly the knock the ball out of the park successes, but even the ones that are just the the um, the almost saids, you know, we can do it again. Like in, uh, we can do it in another piece or recreate it in this piece and just kind of um, finding ways to create community by, um, so starting kind of slow before we jumped into, you know, um, more constructive feedback. And then we moved on to um, Barry Lane does a thing called story circles where you read a piece and just ask questions, just questions to because you're interested, and that can generate writing. And so, you know, as far as feedback, those are some ways that I just sort of ease them in. Today, we were actually just starting to approach, you know, um, some suggestions. Or I was talking about what's it, you know, we we're talking about what ifs. And I said, like, a suggestion that's like, you need to change your ending is a lot different than what if you tried changing your ending? Yeah. So we were looking yeah. at, you know, the language that we use. Beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. That beautiful difference. And, you know, I just have to point out that we're taping on November 12th and you are just getting to the point where that feedback is working in, which tells me you've had a good, healthy, almost three months of creating those conditions and the climate where kids trust each other and you enough to really um, to be flexible thinkers to and to to be able to um, be optimistic in the face of feedback. It's also been a hard year, you know, it's like it and kids um, have actually voiced, articulated, you know, how it's challenging to be back together. And so we've I'm going pretty slow, you know, and I'm and I think it's going to pay huge dividends. That's generally how I operate. You know, let's make sure we have these, you know, these kind of structures down and how we're going to treat one another and um, and and have it come from kids, you know. And so it feels a little slow, but I also feel like it's really important. Right. And I I want to say probably we could all learn in more, you know, typical years from this year, because I think I see educators around the country, and you are certainly a leader among them, Chris, of leading gently in this time. There has to be a sort of recognition of how tender we all are. And I mean, you have always stood out as one of the most 
gentle leaders that I, I really have ever known. And that just is, it seeps into every cell of this book. I love it so much because it's so you as a teacher. It has a million practical ideas. I've already been trying them and that's wonderful, but it also has that sort of sensibility that you bring to your work that is powerful and strong and simultaneously gentle. And I think that's what we all need. That's why I teach, think teachers are just going to, you know, devour this book. Well, that, thanks, Ellen. I, I would love that. And I love that, um, you know, one of the things I'm proud of in the book is it, it just has a lot of my students in it, you know, and it, it just exudes kids, right? And, you know, examples, um, and it is, I hope it is really practical. And there's, I think there are a lot of strategies people can pull in, but pull into their existing practice. Like it's not like a program you have to take on or you can keep we're keeping the same structures. All the practices are mini lessons. We already do mini lessons. So you could try this mini lesson to help kids be a little more flexible. And that, yeah, gentle with ourselves too, because one thing I, at the end of the book, it ends with sort of um, a final word where I just sort of mention this isn't like a program to 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 do in in completion but but a smorgasbord to kind of sample from as we're just trying to change a little something you know in our practice so it's just an invitation to do that our thanks to chris and ellen for their time today the writer's mindset is available now from heineman.com you can follow chris on twitter at c hall teacher and you can follow ellen at ellen king learn more and read a transcript of this episode at blog.heineman.com the Heinemann Podcast is a production of Heinemann Publishing. It is produced and edited by Steph George. Sound mixing by Steph George. Our creative producer is Lauren Audette. And our executive producer is me, Brett Whitmarsh. To learn more about the Heinemann Podcast, visit blog.heinemann.com. Thanks for listening.